Hey, welcome to the Horse Hour podcast. I'm Amy Frost, and today we're at the National Equine Forum, where you get to hear from all the top experts in the industry, and we talk about how we're going to make our industry much, much better. You can get involved by using hashtag Horse Hour, hashtag NEF, ask any question that you like, and they'll put it to the forum. And today you're going to hear from some of those guest speakers on the podcast. This is Horse Hour. Welcome to the Horse Hour podcast. Every year we cover the National Equine Forum. I find it so fascinating where you have a room of over 100 experts in our industry. And the reason they get together is to talk about the future of the equestrian industry and how we can improve it. And uh, my first guest is Dr. Simon Curtis. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Amy. Now, Simon, well. you we have briefly met before. We met last year at the National Equine Forum because you are an incredible farrier and you won the Sir Colin Spedding Award, which means that this year you're going to be giving the memorial lecture. So let's first hear about how, what was it like for you winning the award last year? Well, it was, um, should we say, the greatest honour of my life, and I mean that. You know, it was, um, for me, it was almost like the... Um, BAFTAs for the equine world and um, I still don't know who nominated me but I'm grateful um, and I, I was told just before I went up that I'd won which in, in a way almost spoiled it for me but um, so I wasn't told till a day and um, just to be nominated was fantastic uh, and so I got the award uh, and was presented it by the Princess Royal which was rather nice. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? And, and do you know the reasons why you were nominated? Uh, I, I think it's uh, longevity. I think I've survived more, longer than most other farriers. Um, <laughs> no, that's not strictly true. I think, um, uh, you know, it's not rather unusual for a farrier to gain a doctorate. I'm not unique, but as far as I'm concerned in the world, there's only three of us, and they all come from the UK, and I was number two. Um, I have um, presented around the world and I've uh, produced four textbooks, one of which has come out uh, since that award, um, The Hoof of the Horse. And, and I think it's, I was awarded it for my scientific contribution and, uh, uh, to farriery and, and equine science in general. Oh, Simon, well deserved. Um, you, you, you're... Your doctorate was awarded for a project studying the development of the foal's hoof, which I'd love to hear yeah. more about, the differences between the foal and, and the, the adult horse's hoof. Um, I, I think I could probably do about 20 episodes of the podcast just talking about the horse's <laughs> hoof because it's mind-blowing, you know, and there's so much to learn from it. So what, what, in, what enticed you to do that study? Well, I, as a farrier, I, though for the first 10 years I didn't have much to do with foals, I've, I've always been in the thoroughbred world, so 90% of my work has been racehorses, and uh, after about 10 years I started to get some stud farm work, and I realised how fascinating foals were, not, not just their hooves but their legs as well, that, that this is obviously the most dynamic time of development because they're going from about 50 kilos to 400-odd kilos uh, in the space of a couple of years. Um, but everything about them is changing. Their, their conformation, uh, and from my point of view as a farrier, their hoof shape, their hoof size, uh, the hoof angle is, is the thing that's quite extraordinary. And um, none of it had been 
studied scientifically. Um, for example, the hoof angle has been talked about for over 2,000 years, genuinely, uh, starting off with Xenophon, who was an ancient Greek general. And yet nobody had measured the hoof angles of foals. And we had all this um, anecdotal evidence and, and confusing stuff about hoof angles. And so I measured them quite young, um, an average of three months. And then, and then I did them again in the autumn when they were weaned, an average of about eight months. And one of the things I found, for example, is that they start off on average just about 60 degrees in angle. And all textbooks say that a horse with 60 degrees has a club foot. Well, clearly not all my foals didn't have club feet. Mm. Um, and then they dropped by one degree a month. That's a considerable drop in angle. And we sort of knew anecdotally that horses, their angle does decline during aging. So your 15-year-old horse is going to have a slightly lower angle on average than your 10-year-old horse. But it's this descent while they're young, which is just quite extraordinary. And why that's important clinically is, well, almost what I referred to is that we don't want people confusing a normal, healthy foal with a club-footed horse. Because they might, you know, they then start making decisions on a misdiagnosis, shall we say. And, um, and these are just quite healthy at that angle. So, so I think things like that help the industry in general. They help farriers and vets and, and, and horse owners. It's quite remarkable. I have, I have a new foal. It's my first ever foal. And yeah. um, I was looking at his feet the other day. Bearing in mind, I, I, don't, I don't know much. My farriers, I, I'm very lucky, Simon, because my farrier understands that I will ask a million and one questions. And it's not because I'm criticising him. It's because I'm a sponge and I want to learn. And I was looking at my foal's hoof the other day and, and I thought, oh, it is relatively high and as an it uh, you know the angle was quite steep um and so it's it, mm. it's fascinating to hear you talk about this 60 60 degree angle because actually i don't know what angle's right and what isn't i just know that his his hoofs to me looked good <laughs> and and what can you ascertain well, good to be is you know when you've got really I don't have much to compare it with <laughs> well they yeah i mean of course they are they're born with pristine hooves because they've been protected within the uterus, so they come out uh, with a uh, you know high quality of hoof. The other thing that's interesting is that they are pretty symmetrical as individual hooves, and they are paired left and right. So we have nice paired feet, which are symmetrical. Uh, if you ask farriers how many ten-year-old horses they shoe with paired symmetrical feet, uh, they will probably usually if they do four or 500 horses say, oh, no, I've got one. It's quite amazing. So the big question in my PhD was why do they change? And um, are they changing for healthy uh, reasons, you know, just part of their development, which I think they are to a certain extent. Um, but what is it that causes us to have, should we say in, in blunt terms, odd-footed horses, which mm. we have lots of? And... Um, so those were the sort of questions that I tried to address. Um, and as always, you know, I addressed some and I created even more questions along the way. <laughs> but that's the, na that's the nature of any research, really. So does that mean that you're going to be doing more research to find out those answers? Um, I 
think I'm slowly but surely <laughs> reverting back to being a farrier. Um, but I, I've actually, um, it's taken um, one group of researchers so long to get money for a fund funding that I've semi-retired in the meantime, but I'm sort of helping as an advisor. That's more on mature horses, uh, the effect of shoes on um, purchase and grip. So in other words, in, in, in what way do they affect the flight of the leg and, and, and its landing, uh, which is important to people involved with uh, performance horses of any type, whether they're show jumpers or race horses. Mm. Um, so I am engaged there in that. From the foals' point of view, now that I'm semi-retired, but I still will probably have 150 foals on my books this year, which compares with 10 years ago when I was doing looking after about 750. Wow. Um, but that's still a large amount. And, and there are still um, little, there, there's little gaps in even my study that I would like to fill because, for example, I said that um, I had the, I had enough foals, uh, I think, to give conclusively what the typical hoof angle is at three months. Um, but there's even some funny things that happen between uh, birth and one month. For example, I actually think that they go up in angle, first of all, before they start to drop. Uh, Yes, because they, you know, from what I can see, they don't get a lot of exercise in the uterus. So (laughs) when they're born, of course, uh, muscles and tendons and even ligaments are a little bit slack. And I know it's extraordinary that they stand up in minutes and they will follow their mum around. Um, Quite, you know, all healthy foals do that. Mm. But nevertheless... Uh, And that's why they strengthen up, you know, because they get exercise straight away. And so up comes the angle initially and then it then it starts to drop. So so there's a slight gap still in our knowledge there. Um, And uh, I'd like to fill that in. Um, There's a number of other things that I'd like to fill in about young horses and their development. And I'm still working with my previous supervisors um, from the University of Central uh, uh, Lancashire on getting four papers, extracting it from my thesis. And um, Mm. that sort of um, can be frustrating, you know, getting stuff published at a high scientific level in in peer-reviewed journals. Uh, But that's what we're doing. So I am am still engaged in just trying to get the information out of my thesis. And once it's disseminated through the scientific world, then, of course, the trick is to try and disseminate it through, shall we say, almost the three groups that I've written for, which is farriers, horse owners and veterinary surgeons. Mm. So there's still plenty to do. Yeah, I wonder if there's things that we can do to help you. Um, is it is it still scientific if we were all to measure our false feet and then send it over to you? Or is that not seen as scientific because uh, you can't control mm, it? I, uh, yeah, you can't control it. And... Um, you know, I, that's the problem. It, it, it's no, it needs it needs somebody. I mean, it's quite easy to get the sizes. I I just developed a very simple system of, uh, you know, these calendar stickers. Um, you know, for wall calendars. Um, if you if you put them on the on the hoof and take a really good digital photograph, and I used to take five every time just to make sure. Then of course you've got a calibration on there. And you can use that in, there's a number of programs that measure. So you then um, download it and measure. So it is possible to do that. But um, I, um, 
with all due respect to all horse owners, um, <laughs> uh, e- even other parrots. Cyber, cyber. We I, can't. I, we can't even get away tape right. So let's not get us to will, <laughs> to do anything yeah. scientific. So I, yeah. So I sort of, yeah. I and in fact, I was. I can never really understand how how people can use other people's data. I mean, I maybe I was just too. Um, as a scientist, I couldn't be emotionally attached, but I needed to measure everything myself mm. and check everything myself, which um, was all, all part of it because, you know, I wasn't doing a PhD to get a job at the end of it. Uh, in fact, I used to laugh at my um, my university. Of course, you get bombarded with emails now saying what my future prospects in my career were because they thought I was 25 or something. And, um, and of course, that wasn't why I was doing it. I was... I think I was more akin to these great, well, not that I was great, but these hobby scientists, Victorian hobby scientists, you know, who collected fossils for 10 years and then wrote them up or something. And I, I was more that, you know, that I was just interested in these foals. And as a farrier, I'd found a way of, um, uh, you know, of using my opportunity to collect all this data. Mm. And, and that's the thing that I was in an unusual there wouldn't be many farriers in that position to have all these available and uh, more importantly of course i did have to have the permission of the of the stud farms and um and there was enough that um you know allowed me to do that for me to get you know extraordinary amount of data uh, on these folds and on their hooves not not just measuring their dimensions but even putting them on pressure mats and seeing how they were loading how foals that had slight flexural deformities were loading differently to a healthy, typical foal. So uh, lots of stuff, really. Amazing. More, more than I can probably ever exploit. <laughs> <laughs> Simon, are there any, is there anything that we can do to help our young horses? And when I say young horses, I don't necessarily just mean foals. I mean anything up to five, no. really, um, that we can help with their development of their feet. You know, I know that we give them biotin and um, we have to get them trimmed and, and look after them in those standard ways. But have you found anything to really work in the, young, in the youngsters? Um, right. First, let me answer that for all horses. When people say, what's the best thing I can do for my horse's hooves? Uh, what I say is uh, use um, wood shaving bedding and get your farrier to trim your horses if they're unshod every six weeks. And if they're shod, depending on their job, six weeks or less. So that's the easy thing. The best thing, two things you can do for your horse's hooves. Uh, now, youngsters uh, do require trimming more often and they one of the main reasons is their hooves are growing at twice the speeds of them uh, twice the speed of their mum and any slight deviation in their conformation and no horse is perfect so they all have slight deviations pushes the hoof out of shape Mm. and that was one of the things i could measure so it is mainly pushing it out of shape but of course it's it's almost squeezing it out of shape between the weight of the foal and the ground underneath. Um, and the hoof is dynamic at all times um, because it's growing faster than any other part of the body. But as I say, with a foal, it's growing at twice the speed of its mum. It's actually growing at half an inch a month. And when you think the hoof of a little foal is probably only two and a half or three inches high, that is um, uh, proportionately extraordinary. 
So that's why they go out of shape fairly quickly. And that's the, the, the farriers, should we say, their primary job is to reduce excessive growth, but also to keep trying to put the hoof back into shape. Um, there, there is always this thing where people say, well, what happens in the wild? They don't need a farrier. Mm. Well, in the wild, they, um, there's a number of things happen. They're either in an ideal environment, and of course, no horses are really in the wild now, even in Australia, it's not their native land, the, the million feral horses. But what was found there in Australia is that they vary very much their hooves according to two things, the substrate, so what they walk on, and how far they walk. And it is mainly walking, actually, with the horses. Um, they don't actually do lots and lots of cantering and galloping. Um, but they walk long distances for water and for food. And, and that really affects their hoof shape. Um, so, so actually, some horses in a natural environment, or should we say a free-ranging environment, actually could really rather do with the farrier. Mm. Uh, and some don't, and some don't need them at all. Um, there, there's no great um, cure for, no, for the, even the in, horses' needs. Yeah. Even in the New Forest or Dartmoor, you know, where they're wild, mm. semi-wild, um, you know, when the, the commoners bring the horses in and get their fa- they get their feet trimmed and get their vaccinations and get them checked, but um, but they don't roam. It's really hard to explain. They don't roam the whole of the New Forest. So each of the horses have their own little herds in specific areas, I find. Um, yeah. So it means that they're not actually walking that far. And they're also on relatively soft ground. And, and they don't have to go that far because they have access to some quite good um, grazing, don't they? You know, in, in, I know it might be patchy. Um, and that's the thing, again, that we sort of forget that some of these feral horses in places like Australia do not, you know, they have to go long distances to get the right grazing. Mm. Uh, we have Wiccan Fen up close to us here, uh, which I think has now something like a thousand hectares, so quite a large area. But uh, as you say, these the, the feral horses there, the conics, uh, tend to be in smaller groups. And, and why would they wander over the whole 10,000, uh, sorry, the whole thousand hectares if they've actually got close by access to especially grass and water? So uh, one of the things that was found in Australia with the horses' hooves there is that we all have this ideal view, this sort of utopia of the natural horse. Uh, they had just as many problems with their, their feet and hooves as domestic horses have. Really? Um, yeah, so it's, I mean, you know, we'd all love to think, oh, they're, they're roaming and they're, and they're free and they're healthy. Um, not quite true, actually. Um, what sort of problems were they finding? Well, just the same as with, uh, with domestic ones, they have, um, uh, they do have laminitis, um, and they have signs of surviving laminitis and going on, but with all the changes that brings to the hooves, um, uh, they... In some situations, they do get very long hooves with all the problems that that brings. You know, they some of them almost look like, um, shall we say, welfare cases. If they were in a domestic situation, we'd expect them to be rescued and, and, and their hooves trimmed. And actually, that's one of the things that our horse, horse welfare organisations invariably find. If somebody has... Um, should we say, neglected their horse, they certainly haven't had it trimmed regularly. So one of the first things they do is call in a farrier and get the hooves trimmed. 
while they're trying to, you know, uh, treat the horse for everything from worms to, uh, you know, underweight. Mm. Um, so yes, so so the the feral horse. You know, I think we we do need to learn lots from feral horses roaming free ranging that we can apply uh, to our domesticated horses. But as I say, in the last ten years, I'm, it, sadly, it's been proven that this is no utopia. Just having a horse wandering freely, mm-hmm. and they still need they need our intervention because we've put them there, and 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 we might like to think it's a natural environment, but it's just another environment, and. Um, we're not quite sure now, though, you know, the horse came from the central Asian steppes. But even that would vary. You know, we, we again, we would think, oh, this is huge, vast grasslands. But there are forests there. There are water there. There is rocky ground there. Mm. And, and so it varies a lot. I, I mean, I, th- I think the thing is, though, the horse has a certain parameter which it survives within. Um, but that doesn't mean at either end of that parameter there aren't. Uh, problems and it just has to cope with them mm, needs a bit of help doesn't it um you, you mentioned earlier the the 90 90 or 95 percent of the horses that you used to shoe were thoroughbreds um what, what's yeah. the main reason that thoroughbreds have they tend to have really weak feet don't they and weak walls <laughs> what why is that well the, the well, the, the simplest reason is that the average horse has a hoof of about 11 and a half, 11.5 uh, millimetres in thickness, and the thoroughbreds is 9.5. So that, so people thinking they're thin-hooved are quite correct. They are. Mm. Um, and um, that may be partially uh, help their athletic supremacy, you know, they, they don't have quite as heavy a hoof that they have to swing forward and pull back. So uh, just like uh, we run better wearing trainers and boots, um, you know, the, the horse is the same. I actually have a thing about the thoroughbred hoof is that it's not as bad as its reputation. <laughs> um, it gets hammered in training. So if you buy a thoroughbred that's had two years in training, it's probably had... 30 sets of shoes on, aluminium and steel. It has been trained quite hard, which, um, uh, you know, stresses its body, but stresses its hooves. And actually, I don't think a horse gets its fully mature hoof until it's about five. So if you've, should we say, as some people do, um, manage to get a horse out of training, which, you know, a thoroughbred that's only falters, it's not quite as fast as the others. Otherwise, that's usually a very good way of getting a very healthy horse. Um, but it, it, a, it needs to, re- from my point of view, and it's the only thing I really know about is its hooves, it needs to recover from that stress. Um, but it's still not fully mature. So we often see them uh, from on a stud farm point of view. They come out of training, all sorts of nails in their hooves, breaks in their hooves, have to have shoes on for a while, but we try and get them out of shoes as soon as possible. Uh, trim the hooves regularly once a month, not once every six weeks. And then you suddenly look at them when they're five years old and they have these lovely, healthy hooves. So I think for people buying who, uh, uh, horses or or um, taking on these retraining thoroughbreds, then they have to give them a little bit of time. Yes, they have to have a farrier that's sympathetic because those hooves are not as thick as other breeds, they need lighter shoes and lighter nails. Um, 
But having gone through that, most thoroughbreds that are well cared for end up with just as good a hooves as other other breeds, mm. as I say, albeit for the rest of their lives they are they are thinner. Interesting that you said that lighter shoes. I didn't know you could get lighter shoes. Yeah, the, the thickness of shoes and the width of the shoes varies considerably. I mean, quite obviously the Shire is shod with a, if I revert to imperial measurements, uh, is shod with a shoe that's half an inch thick and an inch or an inch and a quarter wide. So quite a hefty um, a thickness of shoe and a very heavy shoe. Uh, thoroughbreds come down all the way down to um, sort of three quarter by five sixteenth, which is about nineteen by eight mils. And actually, you can get six and seven mil shoes. Um, and so the hunter in between is probably only twenty mils in thickness, but it is eight or ten mils. Uh, uh, sorry. 20 mils in width, mm. but 8 or 10 mils in thickness. So, yeah, they vary a lot. And, of course, the nails that go with them vary. Um, and even more technically, uh, how what we call the fineness or the coarseness of the nailing is, in other words, how far in that nail starts, where, where does it actually enter the hoop. Mm. So all those things. Um, and, and so, in other words, a farrier taking on a thoroughbred should not just go to the back of the van and take out the shoes he's been using on hunters or warm bloods, you know, or 10-year-old sports horses, and probably needs to buy some, some slightly lighter shoes. And, um, that, and, and that, in that way, they can do a good shoeing job. And, and as I say, after a year or so, uh, then, then they really strengthen up the hooves. So what are your thoughts on these new variations of shoes that we keep seeing? Um, Glue-on shoes, rubber shoes, <laughs> plastic shoes, stick-on shoes, <laughs> Velcro shoes. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, yes, I, I just have this saying, another day, another horseshoe, because I've been fairly prominent. I get sent them all. Mm-hmm. I get sent them. When there's a new shoe, somebody sends it to me and says, if we can get Simon to try this. And um Here's the first thing. Rubber shoes were tried 130 or 140 years ago because that's how long we've had rubber, as in rubber tyres for our cars. So um, people have tried different um, products. Now, before we get into gluing, of course, the real peculiar thing is that aluminium and steel do the job really well for horses, mainly because they're resistant to wear, which is the main reason for for being put on a horse's foot, but they have a little bit of slide. If we put something on the bottom of the horse's foot that totally stops it sliding, and if you look at a barefooted horse, as it puts its foot down, the foot moves forward a couple of inches, then somewhere that slide's got to be taken up. So it's in the joints or somewhere. So, mm. so we have to think about what goes on the bottom. So rubber shoes on roads, and there still is at least one uh, brand of rubber shoes, the problem is, yes, the, the rider says straight away they've got lots of grip, but actually they've got too much grip, um, and that's been found to cause problems. Really? Then there's the other side of the coin, that nylon shoes and polymer shoes that have been used actually don't quite have enough grip, and especially on grass. And, and owners will suddenly say, my horse feels like it's on ice skates, you know, and um, the horse loses confidence and the owner does. So we have to be careful of that. Um, and a lot of the new shoes are polymers, uh, which for most of us, we would we'd not be incorrect if we called it plastic. 
Um, so polymyurethane shoes. Now, gluing on, um, I'd like to think I was one of the pioneers of gluing on. My first book 20 years ago had the first example of successful gluing on in it. Wow. And that method is still used. Um, acrylic glues um, really glue extremely well to hoof and they glue ex- and they glue extremely well to aluminium. They're not as good with steel. So, so that's why in racing we have uh, tended to use aluminium and lots of racehorses have successfully run and won in glue-on shoes. Um, they have very few drawbacks. The only thing is the main part of the gluing is to the back half of the foot. That's the part of the foot that moves the most in locomotion. So you are restricting their movement. Um, I think we've got away with it because, again, we use quite thin aluminium shoes and much as they seem pretty tough, you can just about move them in your hand. So a half-ton horse moves them quite a bit. So they, they do actually slightly flex with the foot. Mm. Um, so, so that type of gluing is successful. In the last couple of years, you're quite right, there's people have um, tried a variety of what I'd call cuff-type shoes. So in other words, they're gluing around the outer wall and, and there's a shoe on the bottom and it looks more similar to our type of shoe or, um, or Crocs or something, you know, that, that it just goes around the outside and it glues there. Um, one of the problems is we, because it's farriers that buy them and put them on, sometimes these shoes are what I would call farrier friendly and not necessarily hoof friendly. So, so they're relatively easy for the farrier to, to put on, but they, they're not necessarily the best shoe uh, to allow the horse's hoof to move or even breathe. Um, but there are plenty. Nobody yet has replaced traditional nailing. They're still too expensive um, to replace it. But I'm sure one day somebody will actually come up with an idea and they will make a lot of money. You know? yeah. uh, in other words, if, if we invented, well, if, we, if we've suddenly discovered the horse in the last few years, and found it was great fun riding it and whatever else we do with it. And then we found we needed shoes on the bottom. And I said, I've got a brilliant idea. I'm going to nail some iron to your horse's foot. <laughs> you would say, no, you are not. <laughs> no. So if, if, we'd, if we'd come about the problem today rather than 2,000 years ago, mm. I think we would have been gluing on every, every, uh, every shoe. Um, you know, glues, I think... People are unaware how much glues are used now. You know, your railway carriage is made of aluminium and is, is held together by acrylic glue because mm. it's better and easier and stronger than welding. And um, so some of these glues are extraordinary. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, they're tweaked a little bit for the horse world. Uh, not a lot. They pretend they've developed them just for the horse. Um, <laughs> but what they are is, a, you know, is an adjunct to the aerospace industry or as i say the train industry or lots of other industries so so lots of new materials yeah. um, and we're just finding out how to use them best well really. the, the the question i this is going to sound really it could sound quite crazy but um i quite often compare the horse's hoof to my nails my own nails and um you know for years we've been using acrylic nail glue on our own nails and they work yes. fine however if you break a nail, it really hurts, Simon. And I and I feel 
in two minds because uh, with a nail on a on a horse's hoof, it I'm sure it would hurt if they you know they rip the shoe off and the nail comes out, but it's in a place where it's not gonna not really going to hurt them. To... Um, I, I was going to say you're quite right to say you know the the, the human nail and the horse's hooves is anatomically the 